As we read the Gospels, uh, we might get the impression, if we're just reading right through, that the events are happening one after the other in quick succession. Uh, Last week's events happened after Jesus had been in Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover, uh, the first one of Jesus' public ministry, the first time he came, to, it would have, wouldn't have been his first Passover, he would have gone every year, uh, but the first of his public ministry. But we don't know how soon after it was. Uh, he'd spent some time in the Judean countryside and then some time back in Galilee. And then in 5 verse 1, we're told there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, John doesn't tell us which feast it is, uh, which tells us that the sign that he does in Jerusalem uh, doesn't draw its significance from the festival itself. Uh, The fact that Jesus went to Jerusalem, though, for this feast means it was one of the three pilgrimage festivals that the law required every adult male to attend. Passover, Pentecost or Tabernacles. There were actually seven official feasts of the Jews but if we look at the calendar, the timeline of where they fell in the year, we can see that by obeying the command to attend the three major feasts, they'll also be able to observe the other four because of how they, how close they were. Unleavened bread and first fruits immediately after Passover. So that was incorporated into that whole time there. And then the Feast of Trumpets and, of, and the Day of Atonement in the fortnight leading up to the Feast of the Tabernacles. So it could have been anywhere between two months and 12 months between John chapter 3 and John chapter 5. I personally prefer the view that this was another Passover one year later, mainly because that helps us fit it into the timeline of the three and a half years of Jesus' public ministry. But in the end it doesn't, doesn't actually matter because the significance of this sign isn't drawn from the feast Jesus is back in Jerusalem not just to fulfil the requirements of the law but to give another sign and to have an exchange with the Jewish leaders. Last time this happened he gave the sign of clearing the temple and that was a sign, remember, with many layers. There was the layer that said he is greater than any of the temple builders. There was the layer that said that is his death and resurrection is the way that he will purify the priesthood and restore true worship. And then the heart layer that said he is in fact the true temple that replaces the physical temple. And so he is the one that we come now to enter into the Father's house. Well, this sign too has those multiple layers which we'll see. But first, let's look at the sign itself. Now, the first thing you may have noticed is that the ESV, which we use, and all other English, modern English translations, verse 4 seems to be missing. 
Did you notice that as we were reading? Now, if you have your own Bible here or you have one of the pew Bibles, you'll see, though, there is a footnote that tells you what that missing verse is. The end of verse 3, waiting. So, this man was there waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. Now the reason that verse isn't included in the main body of this passage in our modern Bibles is because the earliest copies of John's Gospel don't have it. What most likely happened was a scribe, an ancient scribe who was making a copy of John a couple of hundred years after John wrote his Gospel, probably thought that this needed a bit more explanation, especially for those readers who weren't familiar with Jerusalem uh, and they didn't know the stories associated with the places in Jerusalem. And so uh, he probably wrote an explanatory note in the margin to explain what was said there. And then Another scribe who was copying that manuscript mistakenly incorporated that note into the text itself. In other words, verse 4 isn't missing. Verse 4 was added. What that means for us is that we don't need to take this verse as being inspired by God. So we don't, we don't have to believe that it was actually an angel of the Lord that was stirring the waters. But it nevertheless gives us some helpful background. It, it, it helps us understand what the people of the time believed was happening when that water was stirred up. The fact is that this pool, which has been identified by archaeologists, that you can actually visit the Pool of Bethesda today if you're in Jerusalem. wouldn't recommend going there just at the moment. This pool was fed by an intermittent spring, uh, probably determined by the rainfall patterns. And so from time to time, there would be a movement of the water as this water flowed in. And that had led to this superstitious belief that it was an angel doing it. And then from that came the belief that the first person to step in would be healed. So that's why this man was there. He'd been sick for 38 years and it seems that he'd been coming to this place for a long time, each time hoping that this would be the time when he'd get his miracle or maybe he'd been brought there by a relative. He was, he was disabled, he couldn't get there on his own. Could be that he'd been dumped there and left there. Maybe the relative thinking, well, this is now the only option left. He's either going to die there or he'll be healed there. So when Jesus asks him, do you want to be healed? See, he doesn't say yes or no. He he expresses a sense of hopelessness. He's, He's there all alone. He doesn't have the strength to get into the water. So what does it matter? what he wants. Even if he wants to be healed, 
it's not going to happen anyway. What we need to notice is that he doesn't even know this stranger who's approached him. And even when he's healed, he doesn't know who it is. It's only later when Jesus finds him in the temple that he knows that it's Jesus. Now this challenges the the popular idea that if someone's going to be healed, they must first have an unwavering faith in Jesus. So your healing is is caused by your faith. From that idea, it follows, doesn't it, that if someone is not healed, then it's their fault. They haven't believed enough. They don't have enough faith. Or as some, some of the so-called faith healers claim, they'll say, well, you didn't believe afterwards and so you've lost your healing. But if that's all true, then where's this man's faith? He neither knows who Jesus is, he doesn't acknowledge Jesus' ability to heal, he doesn't ask Jesus to heal him. Jesus simply does it by speaking a word. Then before anything further can be said, Jesus slips away into the crowd. So even following the healing, we see the man doesn't yet have faith in Jesus. All he knows is some random stranger healed me. Seems as if Jesus here is taking things one step further than he did in Cana. At least there, the official knew who Jesus was, had had heard of him, had heard of or seen his signs that he'd done and he asked Jesus for the healing. This man, however, is completely surprised and at least for a short while he's left in the dark about what happened and why. So that's a reminder to us that miracles, whether it's healing or anything else, they're ultimately in the sovereign hand of God for him to decide where and when and if he acts in this way. He's not, as I've uh, sometimes said, he's not a heavenly vending machine who just dispenses what we want when we put in the right coins of faith into the slot. It's also his sovereign choice of who he heals. Remember, Jesus and the man weren't alone at the pool. There was a multitude of blind, lame and paralysed people around the pool. But Jesus chooses this one man and heals only this man. Again, challenging that popular idea that God wants all people, or all Christians at least, to be healed. Now before we look at Jesus' exchange with the Jewish leaders, let's skip down to where Jesus finds this man in the temple. Because this is where we see Jesus' teaching point, what this sign meant for this man and by implication for anyone reading this whom John wants to have faith in Jesus. Jesus says, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Now here's what Jesus isn't saying. The reason you're sick is because God was punishing you for your sinful life 
So make sure you don't sin again or you'll get sick again. Now, there's, there's no question that at times in the scriptures we do see God allowing or sending suffering to people because of a specific sin. Miriam, sister of Moses, got leprosy because she defamed Moses publicly. Uh, Israel was repeatedly conquered by their enemies because of their sin of idolatry. Kings were removed from their positions because of things that they did, particular things they did. And if you're thinking it's just an Old Testament thing, remember how in Corinth some of the Corinthians were sick and had died because of their abuse of the Lord's Supper. And Jesus, remember in Revelation, Jesus warns a number of churches in the book of Revelation that judgment will come upon people in their midst because of things they're doing. But that doesn't mean that whenever we see someone suffering, we conclude that it's because of a sin they've committed. Because the scriptures also affirm that the righteous also suffer sometimes in a worse way than the wicked. In fact, there's more space taken up in the Bible on this dilemma of the suffering of the righteous and the prosperity of the wicked than pretty much any other topic. So we can't draw a straight line between suffering and a specific sin, but what we must acknowledge with the Bible is that in a general sense, All suffering exists because of sin. Suffering is a consequence of the curse that God pronounced on Adam and Eve because of their sin and they sinned on behalf of all of us. The futility that's been placed upon all of creation that brings about all of that suffering until the new creation comes. Jesus brought that out clearly when He was asked about some Galileans who'd been slaughtered unjustly by the Romans. And he says, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? So don't draw a straight line and say, must have been something naughty they did and that's why they were slaughtered. But what does he say next? No, until you, but unless you repent you will all likewise perish. So see how he doesn't say this happened because of a particular sin, but he doesn't deny the connection between sin and suffering when he says something very similar to what he says to this man. Repent or you too will perish. Stop sinning or something worse will happen to you. So what is Jesus' point then? Well, what he's doing here, like, like he did with the official in Cana, is he's graciously giving this man something on which to base his faith other than signs and wonders. From a slightly different angle, though, to the official in Cana. He's pointing this man to where his real need lies, not, not in being healed from 38 years of sickness, but in being forgiven for sin 
which will bring him a much longer time, eternity, in the suffering of being separated from God's goodness and favour, what, what we call hell. What's more important? That he be healed from his sickness and spend his remaining days in good health or that he be healed from his sin and spend eternity in the presence of God. So he calls him to repentance. Sin no more. Please note, he's not telling this man to start living a perfect life, never once slipping up. He's not saying, stop doing naughty things and start doing good things and if you're good enough, you will earn favour with God. Because at the heart of sin and what's behind every sinful action is idolatry refusing to glorify or give thanks to God as God and instead turning to worship the creature instead of the creator. Idolatry is the sin that takes root in our heart and our actions are a symptom of what's in our heart. So sin no more is another way of saying turn from idols to worship the true and living God. Now, how do we know this man was an idolater? Well, because he'd been putting his faith in this supposed angel who was stirring up the waters of the pool. His trust was in a creature rather than in the creator, the water and an angel instead of in the one who made them both. So, it's very significant then that Jesus says these words to him, not at the pool, but in the temple, in the house of God, instead of the house of a supposed angel. Last week I described faith in signs and wonders as shallow or superficial. In reality, though, it's just another form of idolatry, isn't it? Grasping hold of what we want God to give us instead of him, himself. Worshipping the gifts instead of the giver. And we can't deal with our idolatry just by rearranging our priorities or choosing to walk a better way or thinking more positive thoughts. Idolatry is dealt with through repentance. Repentance is simply longing to have my heart pure and undivided in its devotion to Jesus. Of course, knowing the only way that could be is because he bore my sin in his body at the cross, becoming sin for me so that I could be the righteousness of God. Now, some people might say we should never use the fear of hell to motivate people to respond to the gospel. It kind of looks like Jesus hasn't followed that advice here. See, repentance isn't true repentance unless we realise the seriousness of what it is that we're being saved from. Grace is meaningless and we'll treat it lightly unless that which grace rescues us from is fearful and dreadful. The gospel won't truly be, won't properly be good news to us unless we've first heard the bad news of the judgement of God that we deserve. So it's 
Jesus' kindness that he warns this man of judgment and then shows him the way to escape through repentance. Now, some people uh, have given this man a bad rap, saying that he had bad motives in verse 15 for telling the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him because he wanted to avoid getting in trouble for carrying his mat on the Sabbath. I'm not convinced that we can read bad motives into that man's actions, just says what he did. If we're going to assume motives, I, I'd like to go with a more positive one, that he realised there's something significant about Jesus and as any of us would, if he'd done the same for us, he couldn't contain himself. He had to speak, he had to tell what Jesus had done for him. That's a common theme of those whose lives are transformed by Jesus. Even when Jesus says, don't tell anyone, they can't repress that joy. They have to go and tell others. So, the first layer of this sign given to this man tells us that Jesus sovereignly heals sickness and disease, but he also sovereignly saves us from the problem of sin and death and hell. So, believing in him also means repenting of our sin. Well, the next layer, a bit deeper down, we see in the Jews' conversation with Jesus, uh, with this man, sorry. Jesus had healed this man on the Sabbath. Not only had he healed him, but he'd given him instructions that broke the traditions, the rules of the elders that stipulated what you can and cannot do on the Sabbath. Now, the proper interpretation of the biblical law of Sabbath was that you should rest from the work that you normally do on the other six days of the week. If you're a farmer, you rest from farming. If you're a teacher, you rest from teaching. If you're a housewife, you rest from housework and so on. It didn't mean that you sat around all day doing nothing, but that you focused on other things that you didn't have opportunity to do during the week, especially gathering to hear God's word. Jesus made it very clear many times that the Sabbath was designed to give freedom, not bondage, to be able to do good to your neighbour. Now, the Pharisees understood the vital importance of the Sabbath to the life of Israel. They were right in saying this is a very, very important law that we cannot uh, ignore. So, they were very meticulous in working out how to observe it. They'd created... 39 categories of work that were prohibited on the Sabbath. And you'll see there in the the red on the right-hand side, hotza'ah, which means carrying something in a public place. You could carry things in your home but not in a public place. Carrying was actually number one in this list because it was seen as the prototype of all other work. Taking something up into your hands and doing something with it, that's work. 
It was also the only one that the rabbis said, out of all of these 39, was actually mentioned in the biblical law. Remember the man in Exodus who was punished for collecting firewood on the Sabbath. He was carrying wood. So Jesus has told this man not only to work on the Sabbath, but to do the prototype of all work, which was prohibited by the Scriptures, at least according to the interpretation of the Pharisees. He's deliberately challenged the traditions and he's challenged the Pharisees' interpretation of the Scriptures, of the law itself, by doing what was considered much worse than breaking the Sabbath himself. He taught someone else to break it as well. Jesus himself taught that leading a person into sin deserves the punishment of being thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around your neck. So we can understand then why the Jews were outraged, why they were persecuting him because they considered their traditions to be on the same level as Scripture, they saw Jesus not just challenging Scripture or the traditions, they saw it as challenging God himself, teaching other people to disobey God. But what was Jesus actually doing? Jesus taught, based on the Scriptures, it is lawful to do good. On the Sabbath. And he didn't mean that in the sense of it's, it's okay to break the Sabbath as long as you're doing good. No, what he meant was doing good on the Sabbath is actually keeping and fulfilling the Sabbath. Nothing expresses the Sabbath rest more, the Sabbath that was instituted on the seventh day of creation once all things were completed when God declared everything to be very good, what expresses that more clearly than God's creatures serving and loving one another, even if it means working up a bit of a sweat as you do it. So on this level, this sign of the man being healed, of having the freedom to pick up his mat and walk, points to Jesus as the one who restores true Sabbath rest. Of all the days of the week, Jesus picked this day to heal the man, the day that speaks of God's goodness in creation, of his goodness in redemption, of his goodness in promising that eternal Sabbath when all things in creation will be made new, uh, when there will be no more sickness, no more blindness, no more death. You'd be no longer subjected to the frustration and the toil and the pain that the curse of sin brought. The Pharisees in their legalism, they turned this day into a great big list of prohibitions. So you'd, you'd keep the Sabbath but you'd have this lingering fear that you might slip up. You might do something considered work and incur God's wrath. Jesus demolishes all of that. He restores the Sabbath to a day of goodness, of freedom, of joyfully serving and loving. 
Now, there may be a significance in the fact that this man had been an invalid for 38 years. That was the same amount of time that Israel spent wandering in the wilderness between their disobedience at the border of the Promised Land and their eventual entry into the land. And God described that entry into the land in Psalm 95 as entering my rest. So this man is a picture of that. Years of toil and suffering and futility, wandering with hopelessness that gave way to healing and hope and restoration into God's purposes. That's the point of the Sabbath. Now, Jesus could have left it there, but he doesn't. He brings us right in then to the next layer, the heart of his full identity that this sign is pointing to. He shows us that behind and underneath this practical reason for the Sabbath is the theological reason for the Sabbath. He says, My father is working until now and I am working. Now, the Jews would have agreed with that first part. God is always working. God rested on the seventh day because he finished the work of creation, bringing everything into order, giving a purpose to everything that he'd made, but he didn't rest from his ongoing work of sustaining creation, of making sure creation reaches its final glorious goal. That work's never stopped. If he stopped that for even a millisecond, everything would cease to exist. But what was offensive was, firstly, that Jesus calls God my Father. Now, it was considered okay to say our Father. It was, that was a, a term that was actually used already in the synagogue prayers. Our Father in the sense that God is the Father and Creator of all things and of the nation of Israel. But no one would dare to claim such intimacy with God by saying, my Father. Secondly, Jesus makes it clear what he means by that saying, and I am working, meaning what he's doing is the Father's work. And we'll see see that fleshed out in his teaching in the Uh, the rest of this chapter, verses 19 to 47, which we'll be looking at at Friday Feed, he claims to do things that God alone can do, to raise the dead, to judge the world. He even says that there are some things that the Father has chosen not to do himself, but has given him the responsibility to do, particularly the judge, the role of judge. This is what gives Jesus the authority to interpret the meaning of the Sabbath. It's not just that he properly understood what the Scriptures taught, which he did, but that he himself is the son of the Father, he's both the author of the Scriptures and he's the one who instituted the Sabbath in the first place. So Jesus brings us right to the very heart of the meaning of the Sabbath. It's not merely a time of rest, 
It's not merely a time of doing good, but it's a time of participating in what God is doing. The Father and the Son are at work in the world by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Sabbath is an invitation from them to come in and be a recipient and to be a participant in what the trying God is doing to bring creation to its goal. We do it not just with God, but we do it in fellowship with him. We know the Father through the Son and because we know him through the Son, it means that we're not servants, we're children. Romans 8.17 tells us that if we're children of God, then we are also heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. That means all that the Father gives him, he also gives to us who are in him by faith. So the Sabbath is in essence, it's God saying to humanity, I made all of this good creation for my one and only beloved Son and now I welcome you to come in and enjoy and celebrate it with us. Come, come be part of the family, come and feast, come and sit at our table, come and live in our house. So the Pharisees were offended because of Jesus' clear claim to be God in the flesh. They couldn't see past this statement, which in their understanding was blasphemy and worthy of death. That's why they wanted to kill him. Now, our problem might be at the other end of the spectrum. We hear such a claim, Jesus is God, and we pass over it as boring doctrine. Heard that many, many times before. Maybe we see it as a metaphor or something not really significant. At least the Pharisees understood that Jesus' words were the most dangerous words that could be uttered. Because if they're true, and they are, it would mean that they were looking at their God in the face. It meant that they needed to throw out all of their traditions, all of their man-centred interpretations of the scriptures, all of their legalism. They needed to come just to the grace of God that was being offered to them in Jesus. That's why they thought the only appropriate response was to kill him because he's claiming to be God. Of course, we know that there's a better response there to this one who says, my father is working to this very day and I too am working and we hear in that the invitation to come in and be part of that work that God is doing. The better response is to fall at his feet and to worship him for who he is, the son sent by the father to be the saviour of the world. Let's pray.